Happiness, located in Tampa, so not too far from here. And welcome to the session Clinical and Research Updates for Age-Related Macular Degeneration. The session will last approximately 85 minutes, and the last 20 minutes of the session will be reserved for questions from the audience. And please note the session is being audio recorded. If you're using an assisted listening device, uh, please turn to channel six. And of course, please do us a favor and silence your cell phones. Today, our speaker is Dr. Catherine Bose-Rickman, a professor in the Department of Ophthalmology and Cell Biology at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. She earned her doctoral degree from the University of California, Los Angeles, and completed her postdoctoral fellowship at the Jules Stein Eye Institute. Dr. Bose Rickman is a translational scientist whose research efforts over two decades have been focused on the molecular cell biology and pathobiology of age-related macular degeneration. She holds the George and Geneva Bogolowski Endowed Vision Research Chair, which helps support her research program. In an effort to better understand the pathophysiology of AMD, she has created a number of mirroring models that recapitulate many aspects of human AMD and point the way toward eventual treatments of AMD. Dr. Bose Rickman is now studying mouse models engineered to express humanized CFH, both normal and AMD risk associated variants, combined with other known AMD risk factors such as advanced age and diet. These mice develop many aspects of the human AMD phenotype and provide an in vivo means to interrogate the pathogenic contribution of genetic inflammatory environmental factors of, on AMD pathogenesis. Dr. Bose Rickman is using these models to test emergent therapies for the dry form of AMD, for which there are no effective therapies currently for humans. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Catherine Bose Rickman. It's a pleasure to see you guys, and I will try to translate some of what he just said. <laughs> so I'm going um, to start just with an overview and then get to some of the risks and the pathobiology things that are, that are causing it, and then how we're actually making progress in developing therapies for this disease. Um, so as you may or may not be aware, the AMD is the most common cause of blindness among the elderly in the developed world. The number of people with this disease is projected to increase to 288 million by 2040. It is due to a degeneration of the macula, which is in the center of the back of your eye, and it is uh, an area that is most responsible for, for fine vision, for visual acuity, for your ability to see faces, to read. It's, it's a devastating part of the, the retina to be losing. So um, in the macula itself, if you um, I, don't, I don't know what level you guys are, so I'll start low. <laughs> but if, you, if you're looking at the, um, if the light comes into your eye, it, it uh, impinges on the back of the eye in a, in a set of neurons that are called the retina. And in the center of the retina, there's a six mil, uh, millimeter disc, a very small disc, that's full of the cells that are responsible for responding to light. Those are known, they come in two flavors, the rods and cones. And the highest density of those cells is there, and that's why your visual, you know, everything is 
sort of centered on that vision there, and that cones are responsible for your visual acuity. Well, the cells that support those photoreceptors, are, it's, it's, a, it's a sheet of cells known as the retinal pigment epithelium. And it's a lining of cells that without those cells, the photoreceptors can't survive. So they are um, part of the blood-eye barrier. They're responsible for nutrients of the, of the rods and cones. And they're the cells that are, tar that, that are um, damaged first. So they're the cells that we're trying to target therapies toward. Um, so age-related macular degeneration comes in three stages. There's early to intermediate phases. And when, uh, when you, the, that phase, you, you may not even know that you have it. But when an when a, a ophthalmologist looks in the back of your eye, he can see accumulations in that same that we can image the back of the eye. And we can see the, our, the retinal pigment epithelium. And un, in that region, we get deposits, so a little bit like the plaques that you get in atherosclerosis. And those, pla those little spots of RPE deposits, they're known as drusen, they're, they get, they're full of lipids, fats, and proteins. So the, um, depending on how much of that you have, that will contribute to your progression of the disease. So then in the later stages, the late stage of AMD comes in two flavors. It comes as either what is known as a wet AMD. That's a form where you get abnormal blood vessels growing into that macular region. And when that happens, it's a sort of a catastrophic event in the sense that you, as soon as it happens, you wake up and your visual acuity is hugely de um, de decreased. So you really, it, it affects your vision immediately. The good news is that we have a therapy for that that's based on growth factors of, uh, that's called ve uh, <laughs> vascular endothelial growth factor, or VEGF. And we have therapies that, are, uh, that block it called anti-VEGF. And these therapies help to, they don't totally cure it, but they stop the progression for a while. So for the wet form, we have a pretty good avenue of therapy. The dry form, or what is known as geographic atrophy, that's a loss of those RPE cells I was talking about. And it starts in a central, in, the, in your highest acuity area, and it spreads out. And that is a slow progression, and, um, but they, and there's no cure for that, unfortunately. So the, the, our, what we, many of us, but what we're trying to focus on is understanding how that progresses, under, identifying targets that we can use to make new therapies. And he was mentioning that, that this, that's been the focus of my work. Um, so the <clears throat> actual causes of, of AMD, one of the biggest risk factors is aging, and of course we can't do anything about that. But the environmental risk factors is smoking, which is one of the strongest environmental risk factors. So if any of you have the disease and you're smoking, that's a great thing to stop doing. <laughs> but the other thing, um, there's an effective diet. So there's a protective effect of what we call the Mediterranean diet and something, a low glycemic index diet. So a diet that's lower in starches, et cetera. Um, but then the, the thing that I, I want to uh, sort of really try to get a little bit of information to you about, and please feel free to interrupt me or ask questions whenever you want, but the, the genetics of AMD have become, uh, have emerged as something much more important than we realize. So for, for patients who have retinitis pigmentosa, they have genes that actually cause the disease. But in the case of AMD, there are variants, risk alleles. There are, are things that increase your risk of AMD, but they don't by themselves cause the disease. So it's never, 
it was thought that, you know, that, that we know that it sort of points to pathways, but we didn't think it would have as big as an impact as, as it is emerging that it does have. So there are 52 plus genes, like there are lots of genes for RP, there's lots of genes for AMD that, that give you, that are, that are in part risk, but there are two that are responsible for 90% of the genetic risk that's associated with the disease. And those two, one of them lives on, on a chromosome, chromosome one, and it's, a, it's called complement factor H, and it's the one that he mentioned that I study. This is a, um, a protein that's part, or a gene that codes for a protein that's part of your innate immune system, so your inflammation control. And the other one is on what's called chromosome 10, and it's an, a, um, they call it ARMS2HTR01, but basically, and that's because we weren't sure which one it was, but it's um, codes for a protein that's a serine protease. It's involved in the maintenance of the back, the extra, the, so behind the RPE, be, between the RPE and the blood, there's a, a, a like, like the skin, there's a matrix, an extracellular matrix that's, that's um, where the deposits form, and that protease helps to maintain that, and complement factor H is also involved in that area where local inflammation can occur. So these two risk alleles, um, and, and as I mentioned, they account for the minor majority of the susceptibility. So recently, this has all just happened in the last few years that this has been published, what, the, what, what some um, investigators out of the University of Utah did is they actually looked, for, they looked at patients that had the risk for chromosome one, but no other, no risk on chromosome 10, so the complement factor H related stuff. And then they looked at patients who had just the risk for chromosome 10, and they looked at the progression, the pathobiology, like what their disease looked like. And it turns out that they contribute differently, so the patients that have chromosome one, they present with a, a form where there's more, more drusen, more deposits made. And patients who have chromosome 10, they have more of the vascular sort of abnormal bleeding, changes that are related to oxidative stress, things like that. So of course, most of the people, including the you guys and the people in the room that have the disease, you can be a mixture. But what's important about that is that it allows you at least to, if you were to get your genotyping, to sort of have a sense of what, you know, if do you have genetics that are contributing to the disease? And another thing that's important to note is that while there's risk alleles, there's also alleles that are, are variants in the, in the genes that are protective. And in the case of chromosome one's complement factor H, there's a protective allele that it's actually, the effect is so strong, it negates the risk alleles on chromosome one, and even has some impact on chromosome 10. So all to say that these pathways are incredibly important in the pathobiology and then provide great targets potentially for therapies. So um, one of the things that's arisen out of this is that when the HTRA1, the chromosome 10, was initially characterized and, and found that everyone, the, there was a lot of um, conflicts about, is it because there's more of it? Is it because there's less of it? Is it really directly related to this protease that lives in the back of the eye, which made the most sense, because the other, the other thing that sits next to it called ARMS2 is a very, very rare protein that actually, we're not even have established for sure that it's even made in the back of the eye. But anyway, so there was a bunch of back and forth, and eventually, Pharma settled on the idea that we needed to inhibit this enzyme, the HTRA1. 
But um, so they're making an, you know, making an inhibitor like an anti-VEGF, they're making an anti-HTRI1. The problem is that a paper, again, out of the University of Utah was just published where they zeroed in. So this group has access to a lot of donor tissue and it's just, it's a very large scale, incredible, it's a great lab. But one of the things they were able to do is they were able to look at patients, remember we were looking at chromosome 10 patients that just have that allele. Well, they were able to look at donor eyes and to do some more patho pathobiology and show that the H, this, this protease, this HTRA1, it's present in your whole body. But there is a version that lives in the RPE that's specifically controlled there. And in patients that have the risk allele, you have eight less of this protein, less of this protease. So you're, you're not, in, you're not um, controlling this extracellular matrix the way you're supposed to. And that's what's leading to the thinning and the extra neovascularization, et cetera. So, but this is just occurring in the RPE. Uh, partly it's related to how the gene is transcribed. So that, that, that occurs, sorry, in, in tissue-specific ways. So it's made in the, in the retina pigment epithelium in a very targeted way that's changed. So the reason I want, I'm telling you this, is that it's important, you know, hopefully there's therapies that are going to come up that, are, that work, that will work for people, but that not this knowledge, so, you know, so it's, um, I think it's Genentech, is, it might be Roche, I mean, I can't remember, but the, the, they're, they're still going ahead with phase two trials to try to inhibit this protein. And I, you know, I, I'm, it's, it's so far has shown in phase one is to show safety and it hasn't shown any deleterious effects. Again, this will happen over a great period of time, but it's to, to, you know, to sort of the take home of this little aspect of what I'm telling you is make sure that you're, um, if, you, if you find out that you have this risk allele, that maybe this study isn't one that you wanna sign up for, because it looks like actually increasing the amount of HTRA1 would be better for you than to try to inhibit it. So um, when we look at, do you guys have any questions yet? Okay, interrupt me if you do, okay? Or if I'm, like, if there's a level, okay. <laughs> All right. So I'm not sure how many times you guys have done this, but even by the hand waving, we're used to talking with slides and <laughs> showing you stuff. So, um, you know, I, there's, we want to get the ideas across, and, and it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a little bit more challenging to try to articulate it versus showing you on pictures, but of course, Pictures may not work. So anyway, um, so when with is relating to clinical trials, the the for for the late dry form for geographic atrophy, the way the clinical trials are designed, it's they're not based on on recovery of vision, which is your visual acuity. They're 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 based on the progression of this atrophy, which we can document very very well by looking at the you know we can take pictures, we can see over time how it's growing. And, and the therapies are, at this point, proof of efficacy, proof they're working, is by showing that there's a decrease in the rate of growth. Because with each, you know, as the thing grows, all the, as the atrophy grows, all the cells underneath that are irreversibly uh, lost, and, you know, unless we get into regenerative therapies and we were able to put them back. But at this point, they're lost. So anything we can do to slow the progression would be a great therapy. And, Geographic atrophy doesn't always occur in the very, very center of your macula. You have a very tiny, even smaller area that's all cones. It's called the fovea. And that's the area that gives you the best 
part of your acuity. And geographic atrophy can start what in a region we call it extrophobial. It's just outside of there. And, but it, you, it, all, you know, it, inv it invariably will move toward the center of the eye. And if we can do anything to spare the loss of those central cells, we've made a huge advance in protecting your vision for longer, potentially, even if we stop it then, pro uh, protecting your vision indefinitely at the, excuse me, at the point where you are. So the, the trials are designed to um, look for a decrease in the rate of growth. And the current targets that have really gained a lot of attention lately that have gone all the way to phase three, which means if they're approved, if the phase three is now thousands of patients that are taking it, and if it's approved, I mean, or if it, you know, they prove efficacy, then the FDA can rule, okay, let's go ahead and do this, you know, in, in a large scale in patients. So um, the, the two that have made it that far are both related to complement. And what they do, as I mentioned, the complement system we want to, it's, so it's a system that is designed to target inflammation, pathogens like bacteria that come into you, and it's an old arm that reacts quickly. But it also, if it's activated on your host cells, on your RPE or anywhere else, it can do damage. And the thought is, based on all these you know, models, et cetera, genetics, that we're, there's potentially overactivation in the back of your eye and specifically in the central region that's leading to the damage that's causing the macular degeneration. So the, 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 the therapy is to inhibit this pathway. So complement factor H, as I mentioned, it's a regulator. It's one that actually is, inhibits itself. But the, the, the main uh, protein, the one that's at the head of the pathway is called complement 3, C3. And this, this one, and then downstream, there's a, it's basically a cascade of enzymes that end in this, this complex that can do damage. It's called the membrane attack complex. And these other activators of inflammation. But anyway, so it goes from, let's say, just C3 to C5 activation turning over. And what the inhibitor that one company called Apellus has is, uh, devised is an inhibitor of C3. And it's, it has a number of advantages from the point of delivery. It's literally a small peptide, a protein that's much smaller than an antibody, that they can put into the back of your eye just the way that, same way they, do, they deliver uh, anti-VEGF therapies, which is into the gel part of your eye in your vitreous. And it will go back to the RPE and inhibit the complement pathway. So in patients where they've delivered this, monthly or every other month, monthly is more efficient, they found in phase two and then in phase three that they've had a decrease in the rate of, of GA growth, so up to 30%. And that's great. Um, they had two phase three trials, and initially, so these trials take a long time. So they had at 12 months was their first readout that was published. And they showed that there was efficacy. There were two arms. They, they always have names, Oaks and Derby. But anyway, they have one arm where the, it showed efficacy. And they had another arm where it didn't show efficacy. It, it, didn't, it didn't stop the growth as much. But then when they waited until 18 months, because remember, this thing is growing very slowly, but they're continuing to give you the therapy. They did find efficacy in both of the therapies. So they, do, they did show a net decrease in the rate of growth. So this is, this is great news in the context that it could, you know, it really might, it might be a therapy that works. 
there's pluses and minuses, but it is, you know, like the first thing on the block that might actually really help decrease the rate of progression. The other one is from a company called Iveric, and it's, again, another small molecule, but this case, instead of being a, a protein inhibitor, it's based on RNA, like the RNA viruses, but this is like a little tiny RNA that can get into the back of the eye and, again, get to the back to the where it's supposed to act. And this one inhibits C5. And again, this, that's another one that can, if you look at this cascade, that can stop this umbrella effect underneath of the attack complex on the, on the RPE. And they've seen the same kinds of efficacy in phase two. They're just starting to report on the efficacy in phase three. So um, this, is, this is great in news in the sense that we are you know, making some inroads. But the, the focus of what we're trying to do just like they've done in retinitis pigmentosa, we're trying to develop a gene therapy, a one-and-done approach to trying to fix geographic atrophy. And for us, what we're doing is we're actually focusing on complement factor H, where we want to, in, we want to express it or you know, deliver it and get it into the, uh, the retinal pigment epithelium by AAVs, you know, by vectors. I don't know if you know about that. I can, I can go into more detail about that if you want. But basically, deliver it to the cell that needs to make it, which is RPE, and express it there long term. Don't have to do more, you know, it's a single, single therapy, and then we are constantly making more of the inhibitor, so we're regulating the, the complement pathway in the back of the eye. One of the things that's interesting and complex about this is these, these factors, complement factor H, C3, all these things, because they're part of our innate, um, immune system, the, the proteins themselves are present in huge concentrations in the blood, but they don't cross this matrix to get to where the, the area where the fats and lipids are deposited. They don't cross that very well, so it's actually the RPE that has to make a lot of these components for them to work in this small area of the back of your eye. I mean, you think, if there's so much of this protein running around, why are we getting disease just in this small part of the retina? And it's because it has to be treated locally. There's a whole local regulation that has to be uh, controlled, just like the example of the HTRI1 in chromosome 10. So that's why we believe that if we can target the RPE, express this protein, and that we could affect a decrease in, you know, we could re-regulate, augment the regulation. This leads into another aspect of the inflammation. So complement factor H also interacts with lipoproteins. So the stuff that's getting stuck in the back of the eye. And we have work that shows that this is actually regulating. So lipids are another target. Um, there's a whole question about whether statins should work. And overall, so far, statins haven't really done anything, but partly because of the way, you know, the, the overall, there hasn't been enough work to show that you know, sort of targeted use related to the eye. And there's a much more interest now in trying to regulate the, the local deposits. And again, that's, you know, th th these things are accumulating there, so you want them to get cleared out. And the idea being that if you could clear that up, you could decrease the risk and the damage to the cell, to the RPE cells. So we have, we have data that shows that these two systems, the, lip the, the H actually HDLs, so your high-density lipoproteins that are supposed to be good for you for cardiovascular disease, they're actually a risk factor in AMD. And so, and it's all related to the fact that what's accumulating in the back of the eye, instead of being 
pro-oxidant, I'm mean, sorry, antioxidant and anti-inflammatory, which is what HDLs are in the circulation, they're actually, they accumulate there and they become sort of this more dangerous molecule and the CFH can help to clear that. So, um, okay, now it actually wants me, sorry. <laughs> I wanna make sure to see what else, okay. Anyway, so the other, the, so in that, that's a lead-in just to say that in addition to complement to the inflammatory pathways related to complement, we also have these pathways that are targeting lipids that are either local or just maybe systemic treatments. And that there's also, um, there's a new therapy. So there's an, in your, in all of your cells, um, you have this engine of energy that's called a mitochondria. And the, one of the stresses and in, in the, the things that leads to um, AMD is related to excess oxidative stress. So you get you know, excess production of things that are damaging to these little organelles called mitochondria. And there is it, an, um, an enzyme, or sorry, a therapy that's targeted to basically rejuvenate them. And th that's actually being used in an earlier stage. It's actually being used in intermediate AMD. The reason we don't do a lot, we haven't been able to do a lot of therapy targeting the earlier stage, is that it's very, very hard to identify the patients that will progress to the late stage where we can, pr we, we can say, oh, this is a fast progressor. But anyways, so they've started to do some of the therapies in, in patients that are intermediate where you know, they've decided on how they would pick them. And they are showing also some, uh, some, ther some therapeutic benefit in them. And what's very interesting is it's, it's only, I think they're, they're at like phase two now. But what's really interesting is many, many of the patients, in addition to the potentially having an effect on their eyes, this is a systemic therapy, it's making them just overall feel better because they're, the mitochondria in their whole body are getting re-regulated or energized. So it's, you know, it has an, that added benefit. Um, I would like to stop here and see if you guys have any questions. I, I could chatter on about specific clinical trials, but something, you know, small group, um, I'm here at your disposal. Ask me, it'd be great if you could ask me some questions. Yeah. No, I could, I could hear you. That was it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so so what they're think so what, what it doesn't mean that you shouldn't be concentrating on you know the Mediterranean diet all that that's still really good for you. The interesting fact is that they've you know on the, of course the, you know they make these like they do for cardiovascular disease they look at tons and tons of patients and they see that high HDLs you know overall that that is a risk factor and we think because we've actually been able to dig down into the pathways and the effect locally versus systemically in fact. What we did is we, you know, so we have access to, to human donor eyes in addition, et cetera, but which is a wonderful, you know, for, it's a really great advantage for patients, uh, sorry, for, for researchers to, to be able to do these kind of, you know, we, we look in animal models and stuff, but to make, to go back to, to humans, and of course, you know, we can't do that, uh, <laughs> any kind of tissue stuff until, until they're donorized. But what we did is we looked at uh, patients, we had donors where we had their blood and their eye. And we actually measured the amount of HDL, but not only that, we looked, you can, HDLs are these, um, they're lipoproteins, so they're, they're these molecules that have 
all this other stuff attached to them too. They're the small ones, and then you get up to the VLDLs, which are the ones that are associated, very low density and low density, that are associated with cardiovascular disease. We were able to look at who the, what components, who were the, what were the things that were carried on them. And when we compared the serum, the HDL, to the ocular HDL, the back of the eye HDL, from the patient donors we had, we found that the ones that were circulating were doing exactly what we expect them to do. They were anti-inflammatory, they were antioxidant. But then when we looked at the HDL on the back of the eye, it had complement on it, it had extra, these lipoproteins called APOE, it had all this stuff that made it more pro-oxidant and more pro-inflammatory. So acting potentially as a nidus for inflammation in the back of the eye, which is why we want to target, that's the other part of what we're doing too, but why we're targeting HDL, and again, we don't want to target systemically, and sorry, <laughs> um, we want to be able to target it, it locally. And, and we have some really cool ideas for memetics, et cetera, where we could potentially do that. Great question. I was wondering about the, the gene therapy. Does it target a specific gene? Yes, so, the, so in the case of the therapy that we're trying to target, like, so do you, do you, so the one gene therapy that's worked so far just for ocular diseases is something called Luxterna, and this is a disease, uh, this is to, to target an, a retin, an retinal degeneration where there's a, uh, an enzyme in the back of the eye that's part of the visual cycle called RPE65. And Luxterna is a gene therapy that basically delivers that gene to the back of the eye and it gets made there. So now, instead of being deficient in RP65, you, you can fix the pathway and you can see again. It's stop, it's a, it's, and, but there, that's because there's an actual mutation. The, what we wanna do is the same idea. We want to deliver complement factor H in its protective form. As you remember, I said there's a form that's more protective and it can even outdo the risk form. And the idea being that probably the patients that get this will have the risk allele. And we wanted to make, even if they don't, we want to make extra good form of complement factor H so that when it's made in the RPE and secreted into this extracellular matrix where there's HDLs accumulating, all this other stuff, complement activation occurring, it can regulate that and tamp that down so that there's no more progression of the, the atrophy. So if um, the gene that we have that's affected is not actually, I guess, the AMD. It's, it's, another, it's another one, but it, um, I guess, resembles what our eyes look like, resemble age-related, but it's not actually age-related. So we, um, I guess, this wouldn't apply to us? Not necessarily. So are you talking about something like Stargardt's, where you have an inherited form? Um, we do have an inherited inherited form, it's the, the TIMP3 gene. Yes, okay. So, not smiling that you have it, I'm terribly sorry to hear that. It's, uh, I'm familiar with that. So, in, in, interestingly, TIMP3, which you, you probably know, is another, um, it's an inhibitor of a protease, in the uh, metalloprotease in the, in the back of the eye. It also affects the extracellular matrix. And they've actually shown in, in models where they have that. So you get excessive, again, this is a, this, the, ex, the, 
the net effect of the, of the inherited TIMP3 uh, mutation is you get extra deposits formed. And so the, the hope in that case as well would be that if you, that, again, that's going to be a nidus for inflammation. So I don't know specifically that the, um, the CFH would work. I mean, that, that that would be enough. Um, but in, it, since it's a specific thing, it may be that, you know, targeting the TIMP3 itself. And there are a lot of labs that are working on that specific mutation and how to, to develop a therapy targeted to it. Um, but yeah, so. <clears throat> Any other questions? Wow, really? I know you like I've like solved everything. <laughs> Even yeah, so, I was supposed to have a partner in crime, a clinician, but I have you know some some. He didn't the plane. His plane got canceled. I don't know how many of you ran into to issues with that, but anyway. So please, your your question. So can, can you go over diet as far as what's, what's the best thing um, as far as diet for people? So sure. So the, the, they have great evidence that a Mediterranean diet, which is a diet that is more, you know, there's more, um, more vegetables, fruit, more, less meat, uh, red meat, more uh, fish, that kind of a diet is definitely shown to be protective. And then the, the low glycemic means it's a, a whole lot less of rice and a whole lot less of especially potatoes. So anything that has a, a high starch is a high glycemic index. So a lot of that is, is, contributes to the diet. And it's, it's interesting that it's one of the things that I forgot to tell you, which would be sort of a direct evidence, but in models. We, um, our, our mouse models, we're, what we do is we, we have three factors. It's, multi, it's a multifactorial disease. I've, I've um, concentrated on the genetics because we're learning how much of an impact that has. But the, the aging, like I told you, which you can't do anything about, in our animal models, we, we combine aging for us, an old, an old mouse is two years. <laughs> um, and then we, uh, we have this gene changes or we look at the risk variant versus the one that's protective. And then finally, so we, they just grow happily until they're like, you know, whatever, 88 weeks old, almost two years old. Then we feed them a high cholesterol, high fat diet for eight weeks. If we don't do that, we don't get a phenotype. If we do do that, then we get an AMD-like phenotype in the back of the eye. So that's so in an animal model, that's how strong the effect is. Um, there's some thoughts about, you know, however, when we're young, we eat really, really crappy food, lots of Mac McDonald diet, and then, then, you know, can you reverse that as you get older? And the, the, and the answer is definitely. <laughs> so the, it's never too late. <laughs> so. So there is... Um, so for, for progression, I'm sure you've heard about the, the vitamins. There's definitely the, it's, so those are again directed at their antioxidant and there's good evidence that it can delay the transition from the intermediate to, um, to, to late. It's not, it's palliative in the sense that it's, it's sort of delaying progression, no harm in taking that at all. It, it, it's not a therapy, but it is at least something that helps. Yeah, the A-REDS supplements, absolutely, yep. Yes? Is there a correlation between AMD and diabetes then? I feel like what you're saying, the, the advice on the diet is very similar to what a diabetic is. So is there a, any kind of 
And not, not really, although they're both, you know, and, and the, di the, like the retinopathies that occur with diabetes can occur a lot earlier. Um, you know, yeah, mechanistically, they're, they're, they're somewhat different just because of the pathways. But there is, so that's another thing. There is this whole, we're, we're starting to understand that the, the way that I, there's a whole um, energy metabolism that occurs between the RPE and the photoreceptors. So the photoreceptors really need glucose. And that comes from the, the circulation. So the RPE cells, they, they actually, they don't use the, the glucose like most cells do. They, they give it to the photoreceptors and that makes everybody happy because then the photoreceptors make something, a lactate, that goes back to the RPE, everyone's happy. What can happen over time if that, if that energy is disrupted, and there's therapies that are targeting to that too, um, and it, is the RPE cells, if they start getting like not getting enough, they'll bogart the glucose, they'll steal it. And they'll start to use that, and then of course that damages the, RP, the photoreceptors underneath and it's a whole. So that's another area it, that is a, that we're, that's being studied as a way to potentially target or help the RPE cells survive, <laughs> and then in, in turn help the photoreceptors survive. Nope, nothing. <laughs> so, uh, okay, so let me ask you guys a question instead. So, you know, this is obviously a science-ish clinical. So when you came and decided to come all the way here this morning, what were you hoping to learn? Did you hear stuff that helped? Do you have questions that, that I could, you know, potentially help with or no? I'm, I'm, I'm an optician, so um, I, obviously I'm seeing lots of people in that are having trouble with vision, so I'm just trying to figure out the best way for me to help them to see. So, um, you know, beside, beyond the diet, you know, it's, I don't have much else to offer. Um, no smoking. No smoking, that's true. <laughs> All right. Big so, one. Yeah, so. <laughs> that's at, oxidative stress. Yeah, as far as glasses goes, I mean, I, you know, we're just trying to get magnification or, you know, um, I don't know if you have any other thoughts on that, I guess. Well, so the, the support, anything that's low vision related is hugely helpful for them, obviously. So then, the, um, but, you know, that's where you, you can support them in that, that sense. And, and, and that literally these, those environmental changes or those diet, et cetera, changes can really help slow the progression. So it's not a lot to offer at this point, especially since people who have been smoking and have this lifestyle for a really long time are like, hmm. <laughs> but it's a, you know, it, it is, it, it, unfortunately, that and the vitamins is really all we can do at this point. Uh, no, I, I don't know that that would really help. It's either, again, it's their antioxidant, but sort of getting too much of that in your system, there's not, there's not really any evidence uh, that that would really do anything. Um, can, can I let her go first? She was going to ask a question, and then you, yeah, please. Now, yeah, now, we're, now we're like rallying for who gets. <laughs> awesome. Um, so I don't know if you covered it already, but one of the things um, our doctor told us was, um, like the proteins are getting stuck in the cells. Uh, do you think you could explain that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. So in the case, well, and it, it's not. It's just. It, it's it's a little bit in the cell, but it's also it's still getting secreted. It's just not. 
So in the, I'm not sure which mutation, but in, you have, but in the, in some, so sometimes when that happens, when you have, when you're making a nor, you want, so the TIM3, which is a protease, needs to get out of the cell to do its work. If it has a mutation that makes it stick in the cell, so your, your, the protein is synthesized inside the cell, and if it's supposed to go outside of the cell, it has a, an address that's a secretory signal that tells it as it goes through all these organelles as it's being made and modified to go from the nucleus through these little organelles outside the cell. And if there's a mutation that makes it get stuck, it can actually not only get stuck inside and not do what it's supposed to do, it can constipate the cell and damage the cell because it's not being cleared, it's being accumulating too much and that's like there's a whole pathway, that's, there's a whole set of, of things that are targeted at getting rid of things that can aggregate and, and you know, get too much of it and kill the cell that way or damage the cell that way. Does that help? A patient being treated with injections and all, what is the overall process of that? So the patients who have, you mean the wet form? Yeah. Okay. Not, yeah. So the, in, the, in the case of patients who have the wet form, when you go, you go to see your ophthalmologist, they will give you um, a, a shot into the, this gel-like that's an, an anti-VEGF. Now what happens is that there's, we've had that around for a while, and there's uh, what, what remains, to, so it looks like not just giving it to you when you start to see it come back, but doing it in a very rigorous way every three months seems to work better for patients who respond. Now, I have to say, not every patient can respond to anti-VEGFs. Some, pa some patients with the wet form don't. For other reasons they have, it might be my more fibrotic related, and they're trying to get therapies related to that. But in the context of treatments for patients who are responding, it looks like the best thing is to be to be done to do it regularly. And unfortunately, it's not a, th a cure. All it's doing is keeping those abnormal vessels those abnormal vessels at bay, so they don't. It's called neovascularization, so they don't come back because they don't have the signal that says, come in here. And it, you know, over time, that stops working. But again, for most patients, age-related macrogeneration is age-related. And so anything that can you know, help your vision for any amount of time, especially that, in that time in your life, is helpful. It's just not stopping it at this point. So, does, that, does that help? So are you some, if you don't mind my asking, are you on anti-VEGFs or? No, my son has taken over my business and we've been exposed to this for a lot of years. So, so you're, are you optometrists or you're ophthalmologists? So you guys are in the position of not being allowed to give those shots yet. Yeah, okay. But it is, you know, so if you, if you do, for your patients, if, if you can give them that advice, it is better for them to be on a regular. So there's a lot of retina docs that don't do it regularly. They don't, they do it sort of as you need it. And there's really a lot of evidence that says it's better to do it regularly and not wait until, because every time it comes back, it does more damage, as you know, directly when you see your patients. Okay. Huh. Any other questions? Yeah. What you just said about the doing it, the getting the injections regularly, um, 
if you had macular edema, would you suggest the same thing? So unfortunately, this is where having Jim would be great because he's a venture retinal surgeon. He knows that answer directly. Um, I'm not sure if the jury is, what because the, the, the edema, a lot of the time when you treat it and it resolves, it doesn't come back. But if definitely there, you know, it, it's, if, if, you res, if the edema is responding to the anti-VEGF, if it's coming back, then it would seem. But I don't think they do that, you know, that, that that's a uh, regular treatment. And again, I'm not entirely sure, so definitely talk to your ophthalmologist. And if you're, you know, getting a second opinion is a great idea. If you're worried, you know, like if you're not in a tertiary care center like a Duke or a Johns Hopkins or whatever, um, it, you know, it might be helpful to, to branch out a little bit or ask your, you know, what, what the current, your, your ophthalmologist, what the current sort of status of that is. Because it's really changing all the time. We're really trying to, VEGF is, anti-VEGFs are used a lot um, for, you know, because they are a treatment that helps anything that's, you know, sort of vascular edema blood related in the back of the eye. So it's a, it is a, um, a line of therapy for a lot of things beyond wet AMD. Okay, well, <laughs> it was a pleasure talking to you guys. I hoped it helped, and um, you know, good, best of luck. I know that's this is yeah. <laughs> so thank you. You're welcome. Mm -hmm.